Okay, here's where we uh, sort of separate the people who are uh, really positive to doctrine from those that are just uh, hangers-on. You know, if you get cold, just huddle up. It's been an opportunity for those of you who are married to have a little closer fellowship. You can have some quality time snuggling up in here because the temperature is about, what, 40 degrees in here, and uh, uh, they're working on it downstairs, so it'll come on about the time we're done. We do have uh, one announcement. There is a new member in the congregation. Her name is Abigail Davey, and she uh, weighs about seven pounds, a little more, and uh, mother and baby are doing just great. So that's something we can uh, rejoice over. Okay, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. For all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship especially for those of you who have been muttering curses under your breath about the thermostat and the heat, we have to keep our sense of humor. It's called a relaxed mental attitude and grace orientation. So let's uh, remember that as we utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary and begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word, to look at your plan for the ages, because it confirms in our own thinking that you are in charge of history, and that history is the outworking of your plan, and even at a time like this, when we are faced with a very serious national election, we know that whatever happens uh, works into that plan, and that you have taken into account everything uh, from eternity past. And, Father, our hope is not based on political parties or elections, but is based exclusively on your sovereign control of history. And we know that Jesus Christ controls history, and whatever takes place will be for the furtherance and outworking of your, uh, your plan. Father, we also thank you for this opportunity to study your plan and to see that throughout the ages there have been various uh, upswings and downturns and that always you remain in control. So, Father, now we pray that we might be encouraged as we study this so important subject related to the Abrahamic covenant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are now on our eighth lesson in God's plan for the ages, dispensations and covenants. And last time we came to the Abrahamic covenant. And in the conclusion last time I was talking about the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. There is probably no one single 
event. There certainly is no other covenant in all of the Scripture that is more central and more significant to understand than the Abrahamic covenant. Failure to understand it means that you are disoriented to human history. You are never going to understand prophecy. You will probably have difficulty ever understanding grace and salvation, and and you will probably never have a clue how to live a spiritual life. That's how important the Abrahamic covenant is, and we're going to see why it is so important in some of the New Testament passages as we get into our subject this evening. So this is a central central subject. Now, last time, or in the past, we have seen that, that uh, there are three basic dispensations in the age of the Gentiles. These each shift, these dispensations each shift on the basis of covenants. The first covenant is called the Edenic covenant, or we might call it the creation covenant. Covered in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and though the word covenant isn't used there, you might get in an argument with somebody. Remember, in Hosea it says that Adam broke God's covenant in the garden. So that tells us that it is clearly a covenant. It is, introduces the dispensation of human perfection or perfect environment, which ended at the fall when God revised the initial covenant with the Adamic covenant outlining the curses and how the uh, spiritual death of man and his disobedience of the garden would reverberate throughout all of the creation. One of the biggest mistakes I think we make at times is that we think that when we sin, it just affects us perhaps spiritually, and it maybe if nobody really knows about it, it really doesn't have much of a consequence. And yet, if you look at what Adam did... He didn't commit murder. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't commit genocide. My goodness, he didn't even utter a racial slur, that terrible sin of the 90s. All he did was he ate a piece of fruit. And look at the effect of eating the wrong piece of fruit had on all of creation. It changed the the, uh, biological, physiological structure of the animals. It changed their diet, changed how they would eat. It changed the woman's whole uh, reproductive system. It affected all of nature. It changed plant life so that now it produced thorns and thistles. And in fact, all of the created order became antagonistic to man. Not only did it affect that, not only was there antagonism in the created order, but there's antagonism in marriage, antagonism in the relationships between the sexes so that there's a continuous battle between men and women over who's in charge. And that all goes back to the fall and the sin nature. So the Adamic covenant defines those changes and the consequences of sin. That introduced a new dispensation called the dispensation of human conscience, which goes until the time of the flood. It deteriorates gradually through that period ends with the angelic infiltration of the human race and the satanic assault against the genetic purity of the human race through the cohabitation of angels, demons, that is, with uh, with women, human women, in order to contaminate the gene pool. Genesis 6-3 says that the sons of God, which are angels, in this case demons, looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were good and took wives for themselves. So the age of conscience demonstrates 
in terms of the uh, overall appeal trial of Satan, that man is incapable on his own of governing and controlling sin. There needs to be different, a different structure. So that ends with the worldwide flood and the Noahic covenant, which is the second modification of the original creation covenant. We've gone through in detail showing the comparison and contrast of those three covenants. And that introduced the third dispensation in the age of the Gentiles called the dispensation of civil government. Now, one thing that the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant all have in common is that they reflect what became known in secular society at that time. And it's not that the biblical expression of these covenants was, the, uh, was modeled after the human form, but rather I believe the human form developed as a result of following the pattern God had already set with these covenants. In other words, the human contract form that we studied uh, earlier in the year in our uh, series on uh, Old Testament orientation, the human contract form known as a suzerain-vassal treaty form was just the human modification of how God was relating to mankind. That set the standard in all of these uh, original uh, covenants. The suzerain is also known as the great king. The great king would come along and set up a client nation. For example, the Hittites would conquer the uh, Phoenicians and and the Hurrians and and some of the other smaller nations around them and and establish a client nation status with these uh, satellite nations and would enter into a treaty. And that treaty would stipulate the fact that uh, the suzerain would carry out certain positive things called blessings in favor of the client nation or the vassal as long as the vassal did their job. They were out there on the edges. They would, be, uh, they would have certain uh, uh, trade obligations, certain military obligations, and as long as they fulfilled their obligations, the great king, the suzerain, would do certain things in their benefit. If the client nation failed or rebelled, then there was a listing of cursings. Uh, ways in which the great king would then punish or discipline the client nation. Now, what would happen in the ancient world is that if there was a, a great king, and sometimes this might be the king of a nation, or just as you have down in a Philistia, city-states, or in, uh, in Canaan at the time you had, and we'll see this in our study in Judges, on, in Judges 5 coming up, you might have a Canaanite city-state like Hatsor. And uh, you would have a, a coalition of power, uh, confederacy, of maybe two or three city-states, and one man would rise to the top. And that would be the great king. And then there would be some smaller towns around or cities, city-states around that would be that, like the client nation, the vassal to the great, the, the great king. And so he doesn't have to be the head of a great empire like the Egyptian, Assyrian, or Hittite empire. He could just be the leader of a coalition of city-states. But uh, what would happen in the case that they had a client nation and this guy served him in some exemplary way. He was obedient be above and beyond the call of duty. So that the, he wanted to reward him. The great king wanted to reward him in some way. At that time, the suzerain would give him usually a piece of land often, uh, another tract of land, 
in the form of a treaty called a royal grant. Now, the difference between a suzerain vassal treaty and a royal grant is that a suzerain vassal treaty has conditional elements. In the terms that we talk about the scriptural covenants, conditional versus unconditional, suzerain vassal treaty forms tend to be more conditional. For example, when God put Adam in the garden, he said, as long as you don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will live. But the instant you do, you're going to die. That's a conditional covenant. Um, Blessing was conditioned upon obedience. But in the case of uh, what happens is you go through the development there of the Adamic covenant and then the Noahic covenant is that you still have a suzerain vassal treaty form. There's a condition of blessing based on obedience. And by the time you get to Genesis 11 and the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, the first attempt to have an international body to rule man, the first uh, UN, as it were, showing that that's contrary to God's plan. The first time, uh, by, by that time, by the end of Genesis 11, the entire human race is viewed as being in rebellion against God, who's viewed as the great king. Man is viewed in this contractual status as the vassal. God has created man to serve him. He's created him in his image, which refers to what man is in his essence and what he is to do in terms of his function. He's to represent God. Because he has failed and because all of the nations have failed, God changes his game plan in Genesis 12. And instead of working with the entire human race, he's now going to work through one specific individual and develop a unique nation from that one individual. And because this one individual, in terms of the Noahic covenant, is a believer and is faithful to God, God then, as a suzerain in the role of the great king, is going to give his vassal a royal land grant. And it's an unconditional gift. And that was the nature of a royal grant. It's an unconditional gift, usually of land, and that, of course, is part of the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will give you a land that is bordered by the Euphrates, bordered by the river of Egypt and the Mediterranean, and this will be yours forever and ever. So the, the Abrahamic covenant is given in the form of an ancient Near East royal land grant, and that indicates that it is an unconditional gift that does not, cannot be taken away from the one to whom it is given. Now, let's review some of our concepts here on covenants. There are eight biblical covenants. These are not the same covenants that you run into in covenant theology. Covenant theology is a particular type of theology, usually associated with Presbyterians. It developed uh, as a, in the strand of Calvinism several generations after uh, John Calvin. Uh, covenant theology began to develop. And the covenants that covenant theology refers to are theologically derived covenants. The, the idea is that... Uh, that they surmise that on the basis of Genesis 1, that God had a covenant of works with Adam. And then afterward, he entered into a covenant of grace with man. Now, the Bible never talks about that. The Bible never uses that terminology. 
when we talk about covenants in the Bible, we're talking about the biblical covenants, not these alleged uh, theological covenants that are just abstracted from Scripture. There are the three Gentile covenants I've already mentioned. There's the Edenic covenant, which ends at the fall. Then there is the Adamic covenant, which ends at the flood. And then there is the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect. Now, remember I said we're studying dispensations. A dispensation is the, it refers to the administration of God in human history, and that human history is divided into successive administrative periods. And what changes the administration is new information or revelation from God, and that is couched in the context of covenants. You don't just come along and say, oh, well, there's a change here, so that must be a new dispensation. There is new revelation, and it is almost always couched in covenant terminology. So with each of these Gentile covenants, uh, with each covenant shift, there is a dispensational shift from the dispensation of uh, perfect environment to uh, human conscience to civil government. Then with the failure of man to regulate his affairs according to the Noahic covenant and to the failure of man to scatter throughout the earth and to fill the earth and to multiply, God decides to work through one nation, and that is Israel. Now let's review our definition of covenant. Covenant refers to a contract. That's to put it into modern terminology. This is a legal contract. In all of the world's religions, it is only the God of the Bible who binds himself with his creature in terms of legal covenants. And ultimately, this is why in in our Judeo-Christian heritage, we have such high respect and regard for law, is we get that from the Bible. When you look back at philosophers who developed the modern legal theory that impacted the framers of the uh, Constitution, you talk about people like John Locke, you talk about many of the uh, reformers, uh, Reformation theology had a tremendous development of the whole concept of law. You had people like um, people like the man who wrote the uh, track Lex Rex. That's law is king, not the king. It's not the king who makes law, but even the king is under law. So it recognizes the covenants recognize the fact that that God binds Himself in legal contracts with man. So it is defined as a contract between God, who is the party, the first part, who makes a sovereign disposition obligating himself in grace to bless man, who is the party of the second part. Of all the covenants that are made, only the Mosaic covenant is viewed as a temporary covenant. All the other covenants are viewed as permanent covenants. They may be modified, but they are still permanent. Only the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. So that leads us to the two types of covenants. The first is a conditional covenant, which is a proposal of God whereby He promises in a conditional contract with man, using the formula, if you will, to grant special blessings to man provided he fulfills certain specified conditions. Failure, however, will result in punishment. In a conditional covenant, God fulfills his, God fulfilling his terms is dependent upon man fulfilling his terms. 
If man fails to fulfill his terms, then God is free from obligation to fulfill his part of the covenant. This is also called a bilateral covenant, indicating it's, it's dependent upon both parties, by meaning both parties. It's a bilateral covenant or temporary covenant. The second category is unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant means exactly what the term unconditional implies, and that is that no conditions are placed upon the fulfillment of the blessing part of the contract. No conditions are placed upon man. It's viewed as a sovereign act of God, whereby he establishes an unconditional or declarative compact with man, obligating himself in grace by the formula, I will, not if you will, but I will, to bring to pass of himself definite blessings for the covenanted one. God is going to fulfill what he says he will do regardless of how the recipient responds. This does not mean that there are no conditions. Even in the Abrahamic covenant, there were conditions. Leave Ur the Chaldees. Go to Haran. Leave Haran. Leave all your family behind. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. When he gets to the land, get rid of Lot. Look all around you. Walk the length and break. There are conditions placed upon Abraham, but the blessings of the covenant are not attached to those conditions. In a conditional covenant, human failure in an, in an in a, <clears throat> excuse me in a conditional covenant, human failure means God does not keep His part. But in an unconditional covenant, God fulfills His side of the bargain despite man's disobedience. This is also called a unilateral, meaning one, it's based upon the one party. It's based upon the character of God, who He is, and ultimately what Jesus Christ does on the cross. It's called the unilateral covenant or an eternal covenant or a permanent covenant. So we've seen the three Gentile covenants and then we have the Jewish covenants. The main one is the Abrahamic covenant has three sections. Land, seed, and blessing. God's going to give Abraham a land. He's going to bless, him, bless his seed, and his seed will be a blessing to the entire world. That is expanded through three distinct covenants af- afterwards, which merely flesh out the original divisions of the Abrahamic covenant. There's a real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 30, a Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So you can't understand... The real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, or the new covenant, if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant. And since the church comes into it as a blessing partner, not a covenant partner, but as a blessing recipient of the new covenant, you can't understand what Paul says about being ministers of the new covenant. You can't understand Hebrews when it talks about the new covenant, unless you understand the Abrahamic covenant. You're lost in Galatians 3 and 4. You're lost in Romans 7. You'll be lost in Romans 8 if you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant. Romans 9, 4 tells us that God has made this covenant with His people Israel, and it is only to Israel. Romans 9, 4 states, "...who are Israelites to whom belongs..." the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. 
The covenants belong to Israel. The church isn't mentioned in Romans 9.4. The covenants belong to Israel because when God entered into them, remember, an unconditional covenant means, or any covenant, you have God party the first part, and you have man party the second part. Now, it's important when you get into the passages to define who are the two parties. One of the greatest controversies, and we'll look at it when we get there, is whether or not there are two new covenants or one new covenant. And it's my belief that there's only one new covenant because every time you have the covenant parties mentioned, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 9, it is, I, the Lord, make a covenant with Judah and Israel. So it's God party the first part, Judah and Israel party the second part. Well, what does Paul mean then when he he says that we are ministers of the new covenant. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham. God's party, the first part. Abraham's party, the second part. He said, on the basis of this covenant, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the Gentiles. I'm going to bless Naaman the Syrian. I'm going to bless... Uh, the Ninevites, when Jonah goes to Nineveh. I'm going to bless Rahab when the uh, spies go into Jericho. These are all Gentiles. I'm going to bless Ruth, who's a Gentile, when she marries a Jew. I'm going to bless all these Gentiles, but I'm not, I've not entered into a contract with them. They're not party of the second part. The party of the second part is Abraham, but on the basis of that, I can bless all the Gentiles in the Old Testament. So when we come to the New Testament... When Jesus Christ seals the new covenant on the cross, by virtue of the fact that that new covenant with Israel is sealed, God can bless Gentiles. And the church is brought into the new covenant, not by virtue of her relationship to the party of the second part, which is Judah and Israel, but by virtue of her relationship to Jesus Christ, who is the party of the first part, Because every believer is what? In Christ, and we are the body of Christ. That's how we enter into the new covenant, not because there's a separate new covenant to the church. There is not one single passage in the entire New Testament that indicates that the church is a contract partner in the new covenant. But we will cover that in detail when we get there. My point simply is to show you at this point why the Abrahamic covenant is so important for us to understand. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is first laid out in Genesis chapter 12. But let me give you a little outline that you can jot down in your notes so you'll see where we're going as we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. You may have already jotted this down last time, and hopefully you didn't lose your notes. Seven things. Scripture, key scripture. Second the persons involved in the Abrahamic covenant. Third, we will look at 13 provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. Fourth, we will categorize those provisions in terms of who they are related to. Fifth, we will look at the basic motifs of the covenant, the basic themes of the covenant. You know, a word like motif is one of those words that sort of shows something about your either your intelligence or your background. Uh, one time I used that word in a group of ladies, and they all thought I was talking about interior decorating. 
I knew there wasn't an English major in the bunch or anyone who knew anything about literature. Motif is a key word that is used in any freshman or advanced literature class in any decent college or university classroom, and it refers to basic thematic structures in anything, whether it's in uh, interior design or in literature. So there are certain basic themes in the Abrahamic covenant, basic motifs, confirmations, how God confirmed his covenant to Abraham, and then last, the present status of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's the outline. Scripture, persons, provisions, categorizing the provisions, basic motifs, confirmations, and status. Scripture starts off Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, gives us the summation of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this doesn't establish the covenant. We're going to see when we get to, uh, to Genesis chapter uh, 17, 15 and 17, that that's where the covenant is signed and sealed in Genesis chapter 15 and reiterated in, uh, and the tokens given in 17. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. It's a command that indicates a condition, but the fulfillment is not based on that mandate. Genesis 12:2. And I will make you a great nation. He doesn't say, if you go forth, then I will. He says, go forth and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, that's a pitiful translation of that last clause because it is not a, a, a finite verb. It's not a, just a, a cow perfect in the original. It is a, an imperative. Go be a blessing. You shall go be a blessing. It is a mandate to Abraham to apply the doctrine he has and to be a blessing to those around him. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, And the one who treats you lightly, corrected translation, the one who treats you lightly, I will curse greatly. There are two different words for curse in the Hebrew there. The first indicates just treating someone lightly with disrespect, and the second implies a heavy judgment. And, of course, that is fulfilled at the cross from those who treat the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians 3, as the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who treat Jesus Christ lightly, treat him as of no significance, uh, they will be judged uh, harshly in eternity in the lake of fire. And then he says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I want you to notice something. One of those passages, a couple of those passages of Scripture that people always get to when they start reading their Bible, is, and they... uh, they run into the, the uh, genealogies of Genesis 5 and uh, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. They think, why did God put this in here? It defines the families. Right there. What happened? Genesis 10 and 11 defines the family structure of the human race. And God's getting ready to say, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God defines families before he makes the promise. Just a little side note for those of you who think you, they really shouldn't be in the Bible. Somebody made a mistake. Genesis 12:7. God goes on to define the land section. 
He says to uh, Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. The near demonstrative this indicates a specific piece of real estate. Now, the reason I, I belabor this point is because what happens in theology, and, and every, everybody has a theology. Some people have an organized, intelligent theology. Some people have a disorganized, uh, unintelligent theology, but everybody has a theology. Theology is simply, what do you believe about God? And whenever you go to a church and you hear somebody teach and they do not believe that there is a future for Israel, then they have a major problem with the Scriptures. Because, see, in the Old Testament, God says, I want you to walk around this piece of real estate, and we'll see a few more passages to indicate this. And now what these people want to do is because Israel failed and they rejected Christ as Messiah, they now want to make that land heaven. So it was interpreted, it was meant literally in the Old Testament, but now it's figurative or spiritual. And they try to make it mean two different things at the same time. It's either physical real estate or it is heaven, but it can't be both at the same time. This is reiterated again in Genesis 13:14 through 17 when a lot separates from Abram and Abram very graciously uh, goes gives Lot the pick of the land and Lot takes the most beautiful fertile part of the land down along the Jordan River near the Dead Sea which wasn't dead at that time and he goes down to live there thinking that that will be his inheritance. But God says to Abram in verse 14 of chapter 13, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. He wasn't in heaven, was he? He was in a physical piece of property. Look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, not heaven which you can't see, but all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Notice the time frame on that. It's not until they reject Christ. It's not even based upon their acceptance of the Messiah. It's not based on anything. It is a royal grant. It is a free gift. All the land I will give it to you and to your descendants. Interestingly enough, as we'll see in a little bit, Abraham never possessed that land. But God said he would give it to him. Well, we'll see why that's significant in a minute. And to all of his descendants forever. Verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So once again, he's talking about a physical piece of real estate. If it's not, then verse 17 is a meaningless statement. So covenant theologians, in fact, all replacement theologians. Now remember what I mean by replacement theology. It may be a new term to some of you. I don't know that it's a technical term in any of the written theologies, but I think it should be. Replacement theology teaches that Israel was God's chosen in the Old Testament, and then when they rejected Christ and crucified Him, then they are replaced by the church, 
and all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament now become spiritualized and are given to the church in the New Testament. And Israel, well, they're just out of luck. They're not going to ever get anything. So that's replacement theology, and this dominates all the theology of Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Wesleyanism in all of its various manifestations, holiness theology, Pentecostal theology, um, Methodism, all the Presbyterian slash Reformed churches, covenant theology specifically. But see, replacement theology is broader than covenant theology. There are differences between Roman Catholicism, Lutheran theology, Wesleyan theology, and covenant theology. But in terms of how they view Israel and Israel's future, just a little side note, because most of you know, remember when Tommy was here last year. Tommy Ice is a good friend of mine, went to Dallas Seminary with, and is the uh, director of the pre-trib rapture study group. Well, Tommy was invited by a former... uh, member of his church who is now working with an oil company over in Saudi Arabia to come over there to the compound. They have these huge compounds over there where the American workers live and operate to come over there and teach a few Bible classes. Well, the, the international groups that are there are quite diverse. You have Europeans and Americans and, and uh, Jordanians and Palestinian Christians And it's quite a mix. And some of these folks, specifically the Jordanian and Palestinian Christians and and Lebanese Christians, have never had anybody teach them that God has a future for Israel. (laughs) So Tommy went over there, and Tommy's teaching one class on God's future plan for Israel. And he thought they they were vibrating so bad, he said, I thought the building was going to fall down. So he had to uh, smooth over some some real uh, shook-up people there because they just could not understand that God really will have a future for you. But those those Jews are horrible. And uh, Tommy said, well, you know, it's not based on who they are. God would say they're horrible too, but God would say we're all horrible. So uh, just sort of an interesting notice what's going on that, that apparently... And those countries, they have no clue that God does have a future plan for Israel either. And that that's one reason they're having all of this fighting is because uh, God is working out his plans and purposes uh, for the nation Israel, at least in terms of uh, getting the pieces on the chessboard in the right place before the, the uh, rapture occurs so that prophecy can start to be fulfilled again. So there is a literal land and a literal piece of real estate and all of these different theological systems, all these different denominations all reject that. The only group that ever came in and challenged that were dispensationalists. And dispensationalists believed that prophecy should be interpreted not only literally but consistently so that if there were partial fulfillments in the past, they would be fulfilled just as literally in the future. And this, of course, is a foundation for dispensational theology and what is known as the pre-trib rapture and premillennialism. Now, these are not the same, as most of you know. They are different, but not all pre-mills are pre-trib. 
but all pre-tribs are pre-mill. Pre-trib means that Christ is going to rapture the church before the tribulation. So if you are here tonight as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a member of the church, and you will be raptured, whether you're carnal or spiritual, before the tribulation occurs. So you can just relax about that. And premillennialism teaches that Jesus Christ will return literally and bodily to the earth before the millennium begins. Just a little definition. Okay, now, the next passage that we need to look at is Genesis chapter 15. So open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. This is a little too long to put up on the overhead. So we will have to work our way through Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 15 is the actual covenant ceremony between God and Abraham, and it's demonstrated here that that Abram, that, I mean that it is a unilateral covenant. After these things, this is after the division with uh, Lot. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And this was the standard operating procedure in that culture, that if you were childless, then a faithful servant could be adopted into the family. See, it has overtones of the concept in the Susan Vassal Treaty concept. The uh, slave could be made a member of the household and adopted into the family. Verse 3, And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. Notice how specific he is. He shall be your heir. And he, that is God, took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this makes it sound as if it is at this point that Abraham is saved and receives imputed righteousness. But that's because you have a mistranslation of the Hebrew perfect tense here, and it should be translated, he had believed in the Lord, and God imputed it to him as righteousness. It is a parenthetical statement. It is a reminder that Abraham has already been saved and is already righteous. And so this is not a, a promise related to, given to an unbeliever. It's not a promise given to him uh, as a condition of salvation, but that Abraham had already believed. So it is a free grace post-salvation blessing to Abraham. Verse 7, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees. See, verse 6 reminds us that Abraham had already been saved. He had already believed in the Lord, and he had already been accounted to him as righteousness because the next verse is going to focus on those, these past events in Abraham's life. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Abraham never possessed the land in his lifetime. He lived there as a 
a sojourner, as a pilgrim, as a better one. He never possessed the land. Now, if God is going to be true and faithful to His Word, then at some point Abraham's going to have to possess the land. Remember that. That's an important observation. Verse 9, So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Abraham drove them away. So it's a very dramatic picture. The altars are set up. The animals are all laid out. You have parallel altars, and they're cut in half, half laid on each side. And what would normally happen in a covenant ceremony is in a bilateral covenant, both men who are entering into the contract would walk between the sacrifices, thus sealing the contract with the blood of the sacrifices for both men. That's not what happens here. Both God and Abraham do not walk through the sacrifices. Notice what happens in verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, what's interesting here is is it's like a paralysis. Abram is conscious of what's going on, but it's like he but he can't move. I mean, he's like he's asleep, but he's watching, he can see everything and he knows exactly what what is taking place, but he is immobilized. And God said to Abram, "Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. This is a prophecy of the Egyptian enslavement. And oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, that ought to give you a little background for what's happening in Joshua and Judges. That it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. This represents God, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, a contract with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And then it has dimensions. Now, do you go to heaven to find these dimensions? Of course not. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And this land is land that is presently owned and possessed by the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, Amorite, Canaanite, Gergesite, and Jebusite. So it has specific uh, dimensions, and it is to make sure he understands uh, where it is. He gives the present time owners uh, and lists them there in verses 19, 19 through 21. Turn the chapter. Chapter 16 deals with uh, Abraham's a human viewpoint attempt, or Sarah's human viewpoint attempt to, to deal with the problem of, uh, of infertility and old age, and rather than trusting God, and that just creates more problems, which we see today. Because of Sarah's impatience and inability to trust God, uh, Abraham had another child first, Ishmael, who's the father of the Ishmaelites, part of the Arab horde, 
and so we have the complication of Arab versus Jew today. Verse 17, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, Now this is some 15 years after the previous event, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my contract between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which just means my father is glorious, indicating that Abram's father was probably a member of the aristocracy of Ur, and his name would be changed to Abraham. And this would indicate that that Abraham means father of many nations. It doesn't really mean that. It's sort of a play on words for the Hebrew word that does mean that. Uh, But your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings shall come for you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice, everlasting, eternal, forever. These are the terms that define the covenant. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. Notice, not the land of your possession, because you haven't possessed it yet, Abraham. But the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now, what is the time limit on the gift? Everlasting. And I will be their God. Now, if God means anything by what He says, then we have to take the wording seriously. These terms like everlasting, forever, uh, never-ending are important words. Now... Genesis 22:15 through 18 states it again. Genesis 22:15 through 18. Oh, one thing I missed on that: the token that is given there in 17 is outlined in the next uh, few verses. Let's go back there a minute. I jumped ahead. God said further to Abraham, "Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations." And this is my covenant, verse 10, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, the Jews weren't the first to practice circumcision, but circumcision now becomes a sign, a token of the covenant. Every covenant has a token. The rainbow's a token of the uh, Noahic covenant. Spiritual death, or the, excuse me, the tree of life was the token of the Edenic covenant. Spiritual death is the token of the Adamic covenant. Every covenant has a token or a sign. Uh, the Sabbath will be the sign of the Mosaic covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you is eight days old, shall be circumcised throughout your generations. So that outlines the token of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant that you are in this special relationship with God is circumcision. Now, the covenant is reaffirmed in Genesis 22:15 through 18 with Isaac. And notice what is stated there. 
God said, and by myself I have sworn. Notice, by myself, it's not, uni- it's not bilateral, it's unilateral. One person's involved. By myself I have sworn, declared the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." So there it's reaffirmed after Isaac's or the uh, um, willingness of Abraham to sacrifice uh, Isaac. So that covers the basic scripture for the Abrahamic covenant. We move to the second point, which is the persons. Part of the first part is God. Part of the second part is Abraham. But he is the representative of the entire Jewish nation. So that Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. Moses will be the father of the Jewish nation. Then we come to the provisions, the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. First of all, to develop a great nation from Abraham. This is mentioned in Genesis 12, 2, 13, 16, 15, 5, 17, 1, 2, 7, and 22, 17. First provision or promise is that God will develop a great nation from Abraham. Second, that he would give him a piece of land in the Middle East. This is stated in 12.7, 13, 13, verses 14, 15, and 17. Chapter 15, verses 7 through 21, and in 17.8. And then third, Abraham himself was to be blessed. This went into effect immediately. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is to be a blessing to those around him. And what happens in chapter 13? Chapter 13, you have the invasion of the five-king confederacy under Keterleomer. And they come into the land and they defeat the Canaanite armies that are there and overrun the cities and take people captive and they steal their flocks and their herds and Abraham gathers together all of his servants he had a lot of, he had enough servants to make up a small army that indicates Abraham was incredibly wealthy he was in his day probably as wealthy as Bill Gates is in our day that's just something to indicate that that God does not put a premium on poverty some people get that idea Abraham immediately went out and defeated that army of Keterleomers and captured all the booty and brought it back and rescued those who had been taken captive, including his nephew Lot. He is a blessing to those around him. No one else could protect, protect them, but Abraham was able to. So apparently he believed in the personal possession of uh, whatever weapons were necessary to protect home and hearth contrary to some people in our society today. But I won't get off on a political sidetrack. Fourth point, Abraham's name will be great. He will be famous, well-known. This is given in 12.2. The fifth provision is those uh, who bless the Jews will be blessed, and those who curse the Jews will be cursed. That's point five and point six. Those who bless... Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. And then the seventh provision, in him, that is in Abram, Abraham, all the nations, all the families of the earth 
will be blessed. Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.18. Seven of thirteen provisions. Four, Abram's name will be great. 12.2.5, those who, are, who bless him will be blessed. 12.3.6, those who curse him will be cursed. 0.7, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. 12.3 and 22.18. Then the eighth provision, Sarah will have a son. When she is past the age of childbearing, he's past the age of childbearing, God will miraculously bring forth life in a dead womb, demonstrating. And every time there is a barren woman in Scripture, the point is to show that God brings life where there is death, and it all is a type of regeneration, that God brings life where there is spiritual death. And God creates spiritual life where there is spiritual death when we put our faith and trust alone in Christ alone. Salvation is not by works. It's not by anything man does. It is by the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that Scripture says, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed. The only condition in John 3.18 is that he has not believed. The other day, I won't mention who it is now. The other day, I was at a website of a very large conservative Christian denomination, one of their state denominations, and they had a page on there stating the gospel. Third point in the gospel was you needed, and this is the key point, you needed to invite Jesus into your life. And I just couldn't resist emailing the president of that denominational body and said how embarrassed and appalled I was to have originally been licensed in the gospel ministry by that denomination and uh, that they can't even get the gospel right. That never does it say invite Jesus into your life. You can't find one scripture verse that states it that way. That is a a very nebulous, distorted, confused statement. Over and again, the only condition in Scripture is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't invite Him into your heart. That's Revelation 3.20. That has to do with fellowship. You don't invite Him into your life. That's never mentioned. You just trust in Christ that He died as a substitute for your sins. So, at that point, you are regenerate. God brings life, creates life where there was spiritual death just as he created physical life in Sarah's womb, physical bodily life, and that became uh, Isaac. 15, 1 through 4, 17, 15 through 21, that was a provision, the eighth provision. Ninth provision, the Egyptian bondage and deliverance. Add that in. The Egyptian bondage and deliverance is promised in 15, 13 through 15. And in verse 10, not only does he promise it, God tells tells them how many years it will last. Verse 10, other nations will come from Abraham, mentioned in 17, 3 through 6, and that is fulfilled in all the various uh, Arab states today. The 11th point, there's a change of name from Abram, meaning my father is exalted, to Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude, Twelfth point, Sarai, which means princess, is named to Sarah, which means the princess. In 17.5. And the token, the thirteenth point, is circumcision, 17.9 through 14. So those are the nine provisions 
of the Abrahamic covenant. These provisions can be, under the fourth point, categorizing the provisions, can be divided into three sections. First of all, to Abraham personally, seven things are promised. He is to be the father of a great nation. He himself will possess the land. Other nations will come from him. Kings will arise from him. He is promised certain personal blessings. He himself will be a blessing and was to those who lived around him. And his name would be great. Seven things promised to Abraham personally, father of a great nation. He himself will possess the land. Other nations will come from him. Kings will arise from him. He has promised certain personal blessings. He himself will be a blessing and his name will be great. To the seed, Israel is promised that first the nation will be great. They were destined to be innumerable, destined to possess the physical land. They are promised ultimate victory over their enemies. Four things promised Israel. The nation would be great, they would be innumerable, they would possess the land, and they would have ultimate victory over their enemies, which of course isn't fulfilled till Armageddon. And then to the Gentiles there are provisions. Blessing for blessing, cursing for cursing, spiritual blessings through the seed of Abraham who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us up to the fifth point, which is the three themes or the three... Well, let's go ahead and do that. That's a simple one. It's the next one that gets lengthy. So we'll finish with the fifth section. Three basic motifs or themes... And these are land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. If the seed, you know, here's an interesting argument just occurred to me. If the seed is fulfilled literally, then so would the land. The blessing is fulfilled literally, so would the land. So whatever you do, you can't avoid the literal fulfillment of the land promise. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus, we're going to see next time, is that Jesus uses that promise. He said, God promised Abraham, you will possess the land. Abraham has never yet possessed the land. And Jesus is going to use that in a very sophisticated argument to demonstrate a theological point against the Sadducees in Matthew. And we will look at that next time. Just a little teaser to get you back next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the time that we've had to look at Your Word, and we do thank You that Your grace goes far beyond anything that we can ever imagine, and that it is totally due to Your grace that You made such remarkable promises to Abraham, and that through Him You have indeed blessed all humanity, because that is ultimately fulfilled in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for us. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us as we study these things to understand their significance, their importance, and how, how all of Scripture it really hinges upon a proper understanding and interpretation of these covenants. And we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we are learning, for they are foundational to our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.